Well, once again, it is a true pleasure to be able to be with you this morning and to be able to share God's Word. I find it pretty amazing the way he works things out. Uh, The rest of the story was that I was scheduled to preach in the evening, and because everything is sort of up in the air uh, in our church, too. Uh, we're just going kind of week by week, whatever happens. So I wrote a sermon for one off that I was going to preach this evening. And I thought, hey, I've got it written, ready to go. Might as well just share that with you as well. So for this morning, you're going to be joining me in looking at Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. The words will be on the screen in their entirety. And uh, I'll start with just the first few verses. I'm actually going to back up to the end of chapter 1, adding a few words there. Haggai 2, chapter 1 through 9, begins by saying, In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. And I figured I'd stop right there because most of us probably don't know where we are in history, even though it says it's the second year of King Darius. So let me kind of build some momentum so we know where we are in this book of Haggai. Now, because of the way that it starts, we can actually date this this prophecy very specifically. It took place on October 21, 520 B.C. Now again, if that doesn't mean a whole lot to you, let's back all the way up. The story of the Old Testament generally is a lot about God working through his people, the nation of Israel, and turning them into a nation. It goes all the way back after the Tower of Babel when nations were created and people split into different language groups. Of all of those groups, God chose Abraham and he made a special covenant with him saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he spoke a blessing upon Abraham. Well, Abraham all the way through into Egypt and then the exodus out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And then after that, we see the people wander through the wilderness and they go into the promised land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. And then after that, they enter into a season of judges. They get sick of that and they want a king. And so there are first three kings that rule over the united kingdom of Israel, all 12 tribes. And that the kingdom expands and it grows, but then after Solomon, that third king, it kind of gets hairy for a bit. And so that one nation splits into two, ten tribes to the north, becoming the kingdom of Israel. The two tribes to the south, becoming the nation of Judah. And it doesn't go really well. In both nations, neither of them have kings that typically lead well. Most of the kings lead very poorly. They pursue false gods and idols instead of leading the people in the proper presence of God. And because of that, after warning after warning through his prophets, God eventually brings destructions on both of the nations. First, the northern nation of Israel falls in 722 B.C. to the Assyrian Empire. And then later on, in 586 B.C., the nation of Judah falls to the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. And so, in many ways, that's where the nation of Israel has been for the last 66 years. Off in exile, away from their nation, Jerusalem has been destroyed and fallen, and with it, the temple of God. But, in 538 B.C., 
the Babylonian Empire fell, and the Persian Empire raises up, and instead of splitting the people up to gain appeasal for the new nations that he was guarding over, they sent them back to their hometown. And so 538 BC, Israel, or the Judaites, are sent back with the permission to rebuild their temple. Well, we learn in Ezra that that doesn't go very well. Externally, the other nations don't want Judah to rise up again, and so they try to stop and oppose the building of the city, its walls, and the temple. And so work in 536 B.C. stops with the foundation of the temple having been laid. And that's where Haggai comes in. In 520 B.C., he comes along and he says, we've done enough waiting around. The external pressure is gone, and it doesn't matter if it's there. And internally, they've been so focused on building their own homes, where Haggai says, you've got to start working on the temple of the Lord. And so that's his message of chapter 1. You've got to start working on the temple of the Lord. That's why your, uh, your crops have not been blessed, and we need to refocus on our relationship with him. And so, again, let me start at the beginning. In October 21, 520 B.C., This is the prophecy that comes to Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory. How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now, be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty, This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So again, this new prophecy, 520 B.C., comes to Haggai. And it starts by looking back. Verse 3 highlights the issue. One month into this new work, some people were there who, even though it had been 66 years since the last temple, the temple of Solomon had fallen, they could remember what that temple was look, what it looked like. They could remember the glory of King Solomon's temple, its majesty, its displays. And then they looked at what they saw. The ruins, the stones, the work. 
and it looked like nothing. They were discouraged and they were disheartened because of that. And of course they would be. They're comparing it to Solomon's temple, which was renowned for its glory. When Solomon's temple was built, it took 180,000 tradesmen and artisans to build over seven years period of time. They used 285 tons of gold, five, I'm sorry, 625 tons of silver and bronze beyond measure. So it's pretty needless to say that when the people looked at this pile of ruins sitting before them, and they thought about how the prophet now was kind of trying to prod them to start this work, they were discouraged and disheartened because it just seemed like too much. And what they were already seeing in terms of foundation compared nothing to what used to have been there. And I think a lot of us can understand that discouragement. We certainly don't live in a day and an age where the temple any longer exists. But in every commentary I read, it tried to parallel to at least two other things that could draw some modern-day comparisons to the temple. The one clearly is the church, the church universal and broad. Sure, if we had some time today, we could all share stories of the glory days of the church. Times when mission conferences were held, when new church plants were being sent out and they were being established, and we were hearing all the time of of more and more souls coming to the Lord. And we remember those days and we say, boy, the church was alive and active then. But I don't know anymore. Now we seem to hear more and more stories of aging congregations. Church doors that are being closed permanently because they can't keep them open. They can't afford a ministry or there's not enough people to keep it thriving. We wonder, because of divisions and and strife, is, is the church falling apart? Because right now, compared to the glory days, it it looks like nothing. The other parallel we can draw is personally. The New Testament talks about us as individuals being the temple of the Lord. And some of us can look at our lives in the same type of a way. We think back to high school or or college times and, and how in those times God was speaking to us fresh life and everything we were doing with learning about Him was just feeding our souls and we were so excited about what we were going to do for the Lord and how we were going to go and change the world. And then life kind of started happening. And we either fell into a rut Maybe we made some substantial mistakes in our lives, clear sins against our God. Or maybe we just got older and the energy wasn't there and and we look at ourselves compared to what we had been and we say, boy, it's nothing. Maybe God's work is, is done in me. Maybe all the best is already in the past. And I don't know if there's anything to really look forward to. In our text, Judah was stuck. They were stuck with that idea that God's glory was all something in the past. It was over and done with. And if we're not careful, that can be a place where we get stuck too. 
looking back to the past and thinking the glory days are all back there, that God's wonderful works have all been completed, and now we're just trying to hold on by the skin of our teeth. And that can be a difficult and a depressing place to be. And so into that situation and scenario, God speaks. And at first he starts in verses 4 and 5 by giving words of command and a call to action. Three different things that he tells the people that they need to do. He says, yet now be strong, work, and fear not. The descriptive word that's easy to pick up on there is that word work. The alternative, of course, being that you just look at all that has to be done and you're, you're overwhelmed by the responsibility of all, but it's a call to action. It says, okay, yes, there's work to do, but let's go ahead and let's start doing it. Part of that is the physical work, and it's tempting to just say like, yeah, of course, if you're looking at this temple, remembering what it once was, and all of the cedars it took to build it, and all of the gold, and all of the masonry, and all of the ornate decorations, there's no way we can finish it. But what's more important, and behind all of that, is also the spiritual work that needed to take place in the people. And this was Haggai's main point in chapter 1. Don't neglect the priority of your relationship with God. It's wonderful to be back in our homeland. But the temptation had been, and the people who had been giving into that temptation, to just focus on their own homes, their own farmland, their own desires. And they've been neglecting the temple of God, which was supposed to help them prioritize their relationship with the Lord. And so the command is work. Do the spiritual work necessary of of reprioritizing our relationship with God and, and let's do the physical work necessary. And in that command are the other two, be strong and fear not. Now as soon as we hear those two commandments, it rings bells in our ears of other Old Testament times when those commands were given. Times of significant transition in the history of God's people. The first one was at the beginning of Joshua's ministry. So previously, the people, when they had been enslaved in Egypt, were led by Moses, this great leader who finally helped raise them up, walk them out of Egypt. He led them through the wilderness, and now he wasn't entering the promised land with them, but that responsibility of leadership was falling on Joshua. And the concern is, well, now Moses is gone, so are, are we stuck? How's Joshua going to lead? And this is the words of encouragement that God gave to Joshua in Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And even though Joshua was not Moses, Joshua did lead the people into the promised land. He did lead them into a new era of God's presence with them. The other place where these words are echoed is is in 1 Chronicles 28. This is when King David, the archetype of of all kings, the, the greatest leader as a nation, the one who forever would be a model of what a king was supposed to look like, who had expanded the territory of the Israelite nation, his life was coming to an end. And he was regretting the fact that he never had the opportunity to build the temple. And he was preparing his son Solomon to take up 
that crown after him and to be a leader. And in this important time of transition, in 1 Chronicles 28.20, David says, it says, Then David said to Solomon, his son, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until all the work of the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And as God had told those people in other times of important transitions in history, he's again in Haggai telling them, I know it's a lot of work, but be strong. And fear not, enemies will come, but do that work because I am with you. And so not only does he give those commands, but God also gives the people three promises. And I just mentioned the first one. It's found in verse 4. God says, Work, for I am with you, according to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. The first promise in that work is, I am with you. And if you hear that promise with the words of these returnees from exile, it's an incredible promise to hear. You see, for so long, they had been told by the prophets, you have wandered from God, and because of that, he's bringing about destruction of your nation. And they saw it. They saw these great empires come and destroy everything that had been built, and they were this close to being completely wiped off the face of the earth. We read Lamentations for our confession and our call to response this morning. And that book of Lamentations, written in 586 in response to the destruction of Jerusalem, ends with this question, or or it ends with a plea to restore us, O God, to our former glory. But then with this haunting word at the very end, unless you have forgotten us forever. And that's the question that the people were asking over and over again. Has God abandoned us? Have we utterly ruined our relationship with God because of our sin? And Haggai's wonderfully resounding answer to that is no. God's Spirit is still with you. You are still my people. And the promises I made to you in the covenant established when you came out of Egypt is still in effect. I will be with you. It's not ruined. And that's a glorious, wonderful promise for them to hear. A second promise is found in verse 6. It says, In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth The sea and the dry land I will shake all nations. For those familiar with Handel's Messiah, you can't hear those words without kind of singing along in your head. But the wonderful promise again that lies behind them is exactly this. There's there's more echoes when you hear that idea of, of shaking. Again, they would have thought of of when they came out of Egypt and they went to Mount Sinai and, and God's presence appeared on that mountain with thunder and lightning and the whole earth shook. Or they could have thought about the time when, when under Joshua they came into the promised land and that first city that they approached was Jericho. And they marched around it several times and then the earth shook and the walls came crumbling down. Mighty acts of God's revelation that they could remember and had been passed down to them. 
And in essence, what God is saying in this text is, if you thought that all of my great actions and revelations were in the past, well, guess what? You're totally wrong. Because in a little while, I'm going to show up again in a mighty, powerful, revelatory way that can be undeniable, just like I've done in the past. In fact, that leads to the third promise. God says in verse 9, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. The third promise is that this temple, this pile of ruins that lie in front of you that looks nothing like it used to, It's actually going to be greater than Solomon's temple. Now, now how can that be? Again, Solomon's temple was renowned for its just splendor. How are these ragtag, poor returnees from exile ever going to make anything that compares to that? And the answer is they weren't. And they couldn't. Because even though they were being invited to work, it wasn't their work that was going to accomplish the glory. Instead, God says, I'm inviting you into my work. It's my gold. It's my silver that I'm going to bring into this place. And the desire of all nations will come here. And that's what most people say that this is referring to. What makes this temple so much more glorious was the fact that one day, the greatest revelation of God's presence on this earth and the person of Jesus Christ was going to walk on the very foundation that this temple that these people were building. Yes, it had undergone a major renovation under King Herod, but this was the temple where he would show up. And in him showing up, God's glory would show up in a far greater way. And when he hung on that cross, the curtain of this temple would be torn in half and God's glory would go forth into the world in a new way to be experienced by all people. And so, Haggai says, this temple might look like nothing compared to what it used to look like under Solomon, but guess what? Something great is going to be happening in the future, in this temple that you are building. And so again, to a people that were discouraged and disheartened by what they were seeing around them, discouraged that the glory days they thought were all in the past, God gives them to, uh, the commands to be strong, to work, and fear not. And those commands are given with the promise that God's presence would be with them, that he was going to accomplish, uh, that he was going to... Uh, Accomplish greater glory in this temple than, than what they had even remembered. And so with that, I again re- return to us. What does this have to say about our world as we look at the church and as, uh, at ourselves? Well, I think the first thing is we need to hear those commands once again. Be strong, work, and fear not. To be sure. When we look at the the state of the church, there is much to be concerned about. There's much that we can get anxious about. There's much that we can worry about because there's a lot of spiritual work that needs to be done. There's a lot of physical work that needs to be done in order for the message of Jesus Christ to go forward. And there's a lot of reasons we could sit back and say, boy, 
I don't know if, if we're up to the task in the way that our culture is going and where it's headed. But we hear those commands. Yeah, do the work. Spiritually and physically. People need to rise up. And when we do, it will be the work that God blesses in what He does. As long as the church exists, the New Testament promises, the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And yeah, there might be more difficult times, but the work of the church isn't finished. And we need a generation of people that are going to rise up and be willing to do the work. Standing against what could be concerning in our culture. Standing firm on the truth of God's revelation. And in that work, we can know even more than the people in Haggai's day of the promises that God makes. We just celebrated Pentecost, that wonderful promise that the Spirit of God is present with us, alive in us. And so His presence will lead us as we go forth. At the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus promises, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so that promise of God's presence is still among us. And God is certainly not done working. We never will be at the point that he says, everything God's ever done great is already behind us. No, God promises that Jesus is returning one day and he's going to welcome his church into eternal glory as the great kingdom comes down from heaven that doesn't need a temple because God's presence will be among his people. As a church, we hear both the command and the promises to go forth and do the work knowing that God is with us. And that's also, as it's true for the church, true for us as individuals. God's never done with you. As long as you are breathing, we are an incomplete project. And God can always use us to do great things for His name and to make an impact in the lives of others. Yeah, it might take a lot of work. We have to dedicate ourselves to learning Scripture, to studying it, to being open to the guiding and the directing of the Spirit in order to engage in the work that has to take place. But if we are going to be the people that God has called us to be, that work can and it should start today. And again, we do that work in the promise of God's presence, knowing that the promises made to us at our baptism, the promise continually sealed to us whenever we partake in communion is that we belong to God. He is present with us and He can use us to make an impact in this world as long as we are alive. I don't know where you are this morning in your thoughts about yourself or the church. Some of you probably came this morning excited about the things that God is doing active in your life And I'm wonderfully celebrative of that fact. But there probably are some of you who also look at at the church and at your life and you think, boy, the glory days are all behind us. All the good things that God has done in my community and in my family, they're, they're over with. And all I see ahead of me are dark days. And if that's you this morning, I hope you hear these encouraging words from Haggai. Again, just to reiterate, do the work being strong and fearing not with the incredible promise that God is with you, that God is doing the work and He has future plans for you and for your family and community. And that greater glory awaits all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ.
toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, when we look at our lives and the world around us, it's so easy to get dismayed and overwhelmed by what we see because there's a lot to lose heart over, to be discouraged by. And yet, in the promises of your Scripture, you promise to never leave us or forsake us, to be present with us to the very end of the age. And in light of that, trusting in those promises, may we be among those who go forth and do the work, who offer our time, ourselves, our energy, our strength, our finances, whatever it is you ask of us, so that your name can go forth and your kingdom can be built. So bless this church, O Lord. May there be great days ahead of it. May we expect you to move among this community through the efforts of its leaders and through the involvement of every member. Bless every individual here. May we hunger more and more for your word in such a way that we're willing to just open ourselves up to your spirit so that we see greater things come. But Lord, we don't depend on our work and none of this is for our glory, but all of it is so that your name would be honored, glorified, and go forth and be praised by every tribe, tongue, and nation. Be present with us, we pray. Bless our work. And we pray this in the name of Jesus that desire of every nation who we've been privileged to see come, die, and rise from the grave. We pray it in his name. Amen.